You're listening to a podcast of Business News Background. A weekly roundup of the big stories here in Western Australia. Brought to you by Business News and Lush Digital. So welcome along to another edition of Business News Background. I'm James Lush from uh, Lush Digital Media. With us today, uh, Mark Pownell, Head of Content at Business News. And uh, also, Shana Crispin's going to be talking about uh, yet another alcohol story that she's been focusing on. There's a theme that we've uh, got there. Mark never gets the alcohol stories, but he does get to look at some of the big stories from the week. Let's start, if we can, Mark, with with the EPA. Big in the news. Obviously, there's been a huge amount of interest. Just uh, the the amount of interest that sharks gather is astonishing. what, from a business perspective, do you take from today's sort of or the, the, this week's announcements from the EPA? Well, it's been a you know I, I think the word fiasco is the is the word yeah. that's been bandied around, and it's that's a pretty apt word. Um, in effect, around the the Browse Basin and James Price Point, uh, there emerged an issue where. Uh, the EPA signs off its recommendations at board level, from what I understand. So they've got like a, a board that um, you know tick yay or nay. And um, with the uh, with the James Pipe Price Point decision, so many of those board members were conflicted that the chairman Paul Vogel himself just was the only person who ticked it off. And that, that was then. Um, uh, sent back because how can you have a decision made by one person? It's now since emerged that a whole bunch of decisions have been made over the last four or five years that have people on that at that level making decisions that are conflicted. So they're independent, they're supposedly independent people coming in. They're not they're not um, they're not employees of the EPA. They're they're outsiders coming in, and and as it turns out, a number of them had shares in mm-hmm. the companies, which have um, which have been the proponents of these projects. So what it's done is it's put the projects at risk because effectively their the EPA backing or recommendation could be seen as you know having erred and therefore subject to some sort of appeal or whatever. And so the government has moved to try and try and um, rectify this, band-aid the situation, but it's just ugly and awful and uh, really does make you wonder. Um, and then, of course, today, <laughs> or yesterday, sorry, we had the uh, the sharks. So, it all, uh, you know, and I, I hate to be a cynic and I really hate to, to think that anything so Machiavellian as, mm. you know, House of Cards-like yeah. kind of backflip could occur but isn't it funny the EPA has been criticised by the Greenies non-stop and then suddenly a decision is made that that uh, the, the Greenies will love and not only that the government has agreed to it uh, oh yes saying, we'll take that recommendation even when they don't have to because you know now is the EPA just saved the government from another ugly summer of protests and I don't know but you know it is it, there's a lot of laughs in it I don't know Shana, what, what, what do you what's your take on this you and shark stories and uh, and also obviously the James Price point story Men shark stories. What really stuck out for me this week was actually the fact um, I can't remember what city it was in Over East where um, the man died because of the shark attack, yes. and they were talking about WA and about whether 
that was going to result in a shark cull over there and there was absolutely no question that it was going to result in that and now it's sort of <laughs> WA is followed in the we're not going to do that anymore so that's my only input we're leading the way again yeah. we're reversing decisions <laughs> okay obviously EPA big in the, big in the news uh, another story from this week was the Ancatel story it's been going on for a while as well Mark yeah well look you know Ancatel is um, a major port proposal between Carrather and uh, Port Hedland or Dampier and Port Hedland. Um, it's, you know, basically everyone acknowledges that port capacity is, uh, you know, most of the ports are at capacity and there's uh, there's a possibility of expanding um, Port Hedland, but that's an incredibly expensive option and, and Ancatel is another better option. And, and basically the group that have kind of got control of that idea um, has been uh, a joint venture between Aquila and another group, AMCI, with a partner, POSCO. Now, you may remember some months ago, Bow Steel, a big Chinese steelmaker, made a bid for Aquila and um, and has basically taken it over and it has a partner in that called Horizon, which is an infrastructure group from Queensland. And so what's happened uh, yesterday, um, sorry, in the past also, Aquila and AMCI were at loggerheads. They just didn't seem to agree on anything. So that, that whole proposal for the port, which was to do with some mining, obviously iron ore mining projects, um, wasn't really getting anywhere. Um, AMCI and POSCO have basically re-signed their uh, backing of the infrastructure, so it all looks very positive. The government's saying there could be a state agreement soon, and what we could see is a development going ahead, which, mm-hmm. you know, this is this counter-cyclical stuff you need. Yes, the iron ore prices is, you know, plumbing sort of, not quite the depths, but it's getting down to a level many people don't want. There's some criticism about a supply going out at the moment, but, you know, in reality, you, you basically want to get as much ore going. These prices are still good in historic terms. You want to get the ore going. The Chinese still want the ore, and, uh, and here they are, they're prepared to invest. And I think in the longer term, if we can get a bit more infrastructure rather than being constrained, you know, arguably some of these smaller operators in the future might have a bit more flexibility when it comes to shipping out their ore and taking advantage of higher prices when they come. Want to turn? Oops, excuse me, knocking the microphone. I um, want to uh, look at another story this week, which is an interesting story because we've talked about Navitas before with some results recently, which um, were none too favourable. But um, this is an interesting story because now they're wanting to move from their Applecross location into the middle of the city, which is an interesting sort of discussion point in itself. But yes. also, what does it say about the property market in a central location now as well? Yeah, look, uh, and there's two threads to this, and it's very hard to actually um, take the two things separately because you've got, uh, well, let's take your, 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 your point there. The question is, yes, the, the, the CBD property market has, has plunged. Um, there's a lot of vacancy. I mean, this isn't just um, taking up some space in a, in a building in the city. This is taking up a prime location in the, the newest, biggest, fanciest building there is. You know, that stuff's normally locked away uh, for a long time. So um, great opportunity for Navitas uh, to take advantage of some cheaper pricing that's going on, some opportunities as, um, you know, some people who thought they were going to do things don't happen and others go broke and whatever. And, uh, you know, and, and so they have to weigh up that um, the pricing they would get out in suburbia. And there'd be plenty of people doing it and there'll be a lot of that going on all over the place. The other point of this, though, is also you've got Navitas, when, whenever they probably set themselves up out in Applecross, was, relatively speaking, a small company, um, you know, it has had an international presence for a long time, but was probably happy to be suburban and out of the way. 
it's changed. You know, it's now a real global player in education. It's uh, it's an important company in WA terms and nationally. And perhaps being out in Applecross isn't really, from a prestige point of view, quite suitable. And maybe for just for the, the executives there at that administrative level, you know, maybe going up and down the freeway three or four times a day to mm. go into meetings in mm. Perth is just a little bit irritating. And maybe, you know, they've had to go in town to be where the action is. It's interesting, isn't it, on, on location? Because these days technology enables us to do what we want, where we want. And yet still there is that need to be where everybody else is, even today. You cannot discount the value of human contact, you know. And, and I mean, and of course... All those things are true. I mean, one of the things is also travel is much easier. So some of the things that forced companies, big companies that grew up in Perth to go to Melbourne or Sydney to be near their bankers, that doesn't happen anymore because people can travel. So there's a bit of both, and technology as well uh, makes makes that easier. But, but yeah, I, I think you would think, what do they need to be in the city for? But in the end... They want to, you know, every time you jump in the car and it takes you 20 or 25 minutes or a bit longer these days, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> it's a very good point. Uh, you're listening to Business News Background. I'm James Lush, Mark Panel, with us uh, also, Shana Crispin. Uh, we look at uh, next week's paper, which comes out on Monday, and we're going to look at uh, a story which, again, we've touched on uh, in many ways recently. But the small bar story here in Perth is always a, an interesting one. There's a big feature in the paper. On Monday, uh, Shana, as I was saying, spending a lot of time in, in the Margaret River uh, wine regions, decided to continue that theme and now ends up in the small bars. There is there is a this sort of a theme, isn't there? There is actually a story there, yes. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, this gets a lot of people talking. It's been seven years now since the introduction of the small bar class of liquor licence, which was intended to sort of invigorate Perth and get rid of the Dullesville type thing. And on face value, it may seem like there's a small bar opening every, every week. Yep. Everyone says there's a new one but behind the scenes it's really a struggle for mm. those people who are trying to get businesses off the ground I mean our cover um, person next week Gary Beadle he's just opened lot 20 and he's a man who's got great experience in Perth he's been behind 399 he's been behind 5 Bar and Highgate and he was also involved with Lux Bar and Highgate as well and he just he's come out and said the process is so difficult so lengthy so expensive he's not going to do it anymore he's, he said quote it's broken him, unquote. Really? So he's just, and that's really sad for Perth mm. to think that a man with that experience mm. is just so frustrated that he's thrown his hands up and he's really quite angry with the process. And the problem is with his particular project, he had to go through the Metropolitan Redevelopment Authority, the City of Perth, simultaneously to get development approval, and then he had to go to the Liquor Licensing Authority, or Department of Racing, Gaming and Liquor, sorry, to get the actual liquor license and a lot of that process is just repetition. For instance, there's a dual advertising period for development applications and then liquor licensing. And these operators are saying, why can't we just do it at the same time? It just doesn't seem to make sense. Mm -hmm. But also part of the problem, when we get to that second stage of getting a liquor license with the Department of Racing, Gaming and Liquor, that 
I've done some research and looked into how long that's actually taken. When the class of licence actually came in, the average length of time for that process was about three months. That's now, on average, six months. And that's wow. that's being kind. I mean, Gary's process from Lot 20 took 10 months to get that liquor licence. And part of the problem that people have said is the fact that the police commissioner puts an intervention in on every single application simply because, well... There's a few arguments as to why he may do that, but the premise is that he gives that information to the Director of Liquor Licensing so they can make a more informed decision. Every There's a general consensus that there's a blanket policy to put an intervention in on every single application. Now, they've rejected that and said that it de- it's depending on the merits, but regardless, looking at the most recent applications over the last year or so, well above 75% have had interventions. So... What that's resulting in is just those long time frames because operators have to have their, for one thing, because they have to have their premises secured, their venue secured, they're having to pay rent a lot of the time. Ten yeah. months in rent and not having and an not income. Having re- yeah. So it's just crazy. And, and how much is the whole process costing, approximately? Well, the licensing fees alone, just the one fee that is paid to the Department of Racing, Gaming and Liquor, is above $500. But Gary has told me, I think, now from memory, he had to put in between fifty and 100000 before mm. the even opening. So that's that includes yeah. building and whatnot. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And so the, the, the view is that you've got to go in for the long term and probably if you're willing to take on a hard battle. Yeah, well, people have said there's, the barrier to entry is so high yeah. that you pretty much can't do it in Perth mm. unless you've got both a proactive local government working to get your proposal off the ground and a landlord who is willing to come to some sort of agreement with you so that you don't have to fork out mm, for rent mm. in the meantime. But, I mean, one example or one quote that was given to me during this was, if you look at Melbourne, or, you know, we always look at Melbourne when we talk about small bar scene, but over there, if you're young, which is what a lot of these operators are, creative, enthusiastic, got a little bit of money behind you, you can get a business like that off the ground. Yeah. Whereas in WA, this person said to me and didn't want to be quoted because, it, you know, the repercussions mm. could be quite harmful for them. Yeah. He said, in WA, that sort of success or failure is dependent on the authorities. Great shame. Big article on that uh, in Monday's paper. Uh, also, another feature... As we look at how we spend our money, obviously we're not in small, small bars, on uh, luxury yachts. And um, Mark, a story you got on a luxury yacht building uh, builder uh, that, uh, yeah, again, I didn't realise that we were so big on the luxury yacht building. Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's, it's almost like a secret industry, actually. It's it's um, It's been around for a while and it's t- came out of really came out of the uh, the fast ferry business the aluminium well in fact you go back a step and say it came out of the cray business to be honest because the fast ferry operators mm. and the aluminium boat building skills came out of the cray fishing industry um, developed into the ferry industry I mean you know Austal is really the one of the biggest and best makers of uh, fast ferries and now defence boats around the world in aluminium um, and then they actually there was another group startup called Ocean Fast that went into this uh, luxury end of the boat building and they didn't do so well and and Austell took them over and you might remember um, Greg Norman had his boat Aussie Rules built here um, by Austell or finished off here by Austell but the um, the you know, so after that, that was like quite high profile about five, six, seven years ago. And then after that, it's sort of like very low key because most of these boats get built down in that uh, Henderson area, down at the Australian Marine Complex, um, and they're done by by relatively small um, makers. 
um, often built by the people who set up a company who actually, um, the, so the people who own them actually want the boat and they're setting up the company as part of it and that's happened a couple of times. And, you know, and of course they get shipped off to wherever they're going to be resident and it's not here so we don't see them much. And I remember going to the launch of a fantastic boat, the Shemelda 2 or something like that, which was which was built by a group called Evolution, I think, that, that had um, they were backed by Swiss-German money and that was going back and it was beautiful. I mean, I've never seen a boat this beautiful. As good as yours. Oh, my goodness me, yes. Better than uh, my little runabout. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it, these things just look amazing. You know, they really do look amazing. So th- this one, another group, this is out of Singapore, has set up a boat building operation called Echo Yacht. Mm-hmm. And they're building, um, they're building two things, actually, a, a quite a large boat and then a small one that they're actually in the process of building already that will be like a tender for it, a 42-metre tender for it. Um, and I can't, I thought I had a number of 85 million or something for this boat, which, you know, around about the price of a an Airbus or something like that, isn't it? Or, or you know, a, a whatever Boeing put out, these 7787 or whatever. Um, and uh, which I saw a line somewhere that said, this will, this if they finish this boat and export, it'll be the biggest single export item in Australian history. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure of those numbers, but it, so- it sounds good. And if not, it's certainly the biggest, fanciest boat that we've ever exported. Just 80 million. You won't find it on Gumtree, I don't think, anytime soon. Uh, let's end with uh, an app of the week. Um, I know Charlie's very keen on, on his apps. And uh, so, so Sean, you, you can maybe describe the app of the week, which is called uh, Tripify. And um, since you're a big traveller, uh, not necessarily just across the wine region, but yeah, across the world, what's your take on this one? Well, to be honest, I'm not all that familiar with Triplify, but from what I understand, it's been quite um, quite a successful little app to come out of WA. I think I remember they've won some awards, but um, from what I understand, it, it's sort of it, it's based on events in different cities wherever you go. So you can basically do your research before you go, yep. see what's going on, and you've got your holiday sorted. Or turn up somewhere and go. Now, what can I do? You know, that's that's the trick with these things. So we've launched this app slash tech of the week, um, and uh, Charlie Gunningham's kind of pulling that together. He's got uh, goodness me, I think he's got eighty or ninety or so things sitting on his plate. So there's plenty of these things around, and we just felt like this is a this is part of that startup community, new stuff that gets yep. done in Perth, and and we wanted to display that properly. Um, and this is great at, you know, we say who's who's behind it, what they do and how they funded it. Very nice. And it is local, which is even better. It just shows the interest in the tech sector over here in WA at the time. Uh, thank you, folks. Good to talk to you. Um, Mark and Shannon will uh, chat again uh, next week with the next edition of Business News Background. Uh, hopefully uh, you can subscribe via iTunes if uh, you don't want to listen on SoundCloud. And uh, we'll do the same thing same time next week. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Business News Background, brought to you by Business News and Lush Digital. For more information, go to the website businessnews.com.au.